Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and hopefully entertain you a little bit as we go. Uh, before diving in, I'll just um, maybe take a second to address the elephant in the room, which is that we've begun uh, this discernment process. Uh, and you can find out more about that on the website. You can read what the actual process looks like for now. Uh, that process is almost certainly going to change and be simplified and and maybe even uh, made a bit easier over the next few months as, as negotiations begin. Um, but... Uh, I, I will tell you, my friends, you know, we're doing this because basically uh, almost everyone who has talked to me from this church over the last month has said they think it's a good idea. Uh, they think it's a good idea for us to um, pray together and talk together as a church about what our future should be, whether that's with the United Methodist Church, whether that's with the global Methodist Church, or um, less likely but still possible as an independent church. I've said all along that I'm I'm going to try and minimize my my uh, influence in this vote in the sense that I don't want my opinions and my beliefs to be shaping what the church does. I've not been your pastor long enough uh, to feel that I have the right to do that. I'm going to provide information as much as I can. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to lead you as well as I can. Uh, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking to everyone about what I think the church should do. Now, if you want to come and ask me privately, one-on-one, feel free to do so, and I'll be perfectly open and honest with you when you do that. Um, because like everyone else, I absolutely have uh, my own thoughts and opinions here. Um, and and frankly, I have my own ideas about where my future lies and how that's going to play out in the long run, what, whatever Asbury may do and however long I may be here, uh, because I'm not going to leave Asbury if you just don't vote the way I want you to vote. But, uh, you know, no matter what, one way or another, I, I you know, as much as I want to be here for a very long time, there will eventually come a day when I am not the pastor of this church, and, and I have a good idea of what I'm going to do after that. Um, but in the meantime, I'm your pastor, and I'm happy to be your pastor. I'm not going to leave. Um, but we have resources up on our church website now uh, that will both uh, explain the discernment process a little bit. We have some things up there that will... Um, provide information. If you go to our website, there's a little thing at the very top that says discernment process. Uh, and the first thing up there is my letter to the church. And then after that, there uh, at the bottom of the page, there are a number of videos. You have one titled Information About the Global Methodist Church, uh, which is I'm literally just an informational video. It, it, it's handy stuff. It's good to watch. There's one uh, it's just titled Adam Hamilton at Houston Chapelwood UMC, and that's Adam uh, kind of sharing what he thinks is is going to be the future of the UMC, and it's really, you know, it's from the perspective of why you should remain in the UMC. Those are each, I think, about an hour long. They're worth a watch. But there are six videos after that, and these are each uh, somewhere around 15 minutes long. And if you were here on Sunday, I, I mentioned these because I think that these are really, really important to watch, especially uh, the first four. 
you know, so you get to the last two, and that's why it's time for traditionalists to leave, and where should we go? And those are good videos, but they're obviously, uh, they're they're obviously very clearly uh, aimed at trying to convince you to leave. The first four videos are not aimed at trying to convince you to leave. Uh, the first four videos, which are titled um, "The UMC is Divided and Dividing," uh, our differences regarding the Bible, our differences regarding Jesus, and our differences regarding sexuality. Those four videos. Are, are just explaining why we have conflict within the UMC. They are explaining what it is about and the roots of it, because I've said all along, despite what people want you to believe, we are not dividing over issues of human sexuality. Uh, our division runs far, far, far deeper than that. You can't get to a point where you have disagreements over human sexuality as Christians, unless you first have much bigger disagreements over things like what the Bible is and who Jesus is. And so I want to highly, highly encourage you to watch those first four videos. Uh, before you do anything else, watch those four. Uh, the United Methodist Church is divided and dividing. Our differences regarding the Bible, our differences regarding Jesus, our differences regarding sexuality. They're each uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 minutes long. And they do a phenomenal job of explaining the differences. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, these are all done by uh, a pastor named Rob Rimfro, who serves at the Woodlands UMC. In, well, it's not UMC anymore, I guess. Uh, but it's in the Woodlands, Texas, outside of Houston. And Rob is also the president of Good News Magazine. Um, I know... <laughs> that he can kind of rub people the wrong way sometimes, and he can come on a little strong. Um, that's just his personality. Uh, but I'm going to certify to you as your pastor. I've watched these videos. Everything he says in them is 100% factual. Okay? Uh, it's all very factual. He does not put a spin on any of it. Okay? There, there is no... There is no skewing of information here. There is no attempt to misrepresent what someone has said. Uh, it is all very accurate. It is all extremely fair. Um, he doesn't take anything out of context. So, uh, and I say that because some of the examples that he lists in these videos are uh, going to be kind of shocking if you've not been following this conflict closely. And I am telling you as your pastor, um, he, he's not taking it out of context. He is not skewing anything or twisting anyone's words or making them seem more outlandish than they really are. He's just not. If anything, he's toning it down quite a bit. Um, and I say that because I'm. He's, he throws a lot of quotes in there from other Methodist pastors and seminary professors and bishops. Um, and I am familiar with all of those quotes. I'm familiar with all of the the articles and the talks he's referencing, uh, so I know exactly where he's pulling these from. I'm very familiar with them. He's not twisting anything, not exaggerating, not pulling anything out of context. These are um, the actual quotes. These are actual beliefs of United Methodist pastors and seminary professors and bishops, uh, and these are the kinds of things that are causing division. So it's good to go and, and read those things and hear them, uh, and if you, it, he'll, he doesn't mention names, when he throws these quotes out, because he's trying, I think, really hard to not um, veer into the realm of slander, I suppose. Uh, I think he's just trying to not be contentious uh, as much as he can, as much as he can avoid that, at least. 
Um, but you can, uh, he, he's pretty clear that if you want the names and the sources that he's pulling those quotes from, you can email him and get them from him. He's happy to do that. Um, you can find his email over on the website for the Woodlands UMC, uh, and you'll just you know, reach out to him. He'll be happy to, to share that information with you. But watch those videos before you do anything else, because it is so, so important to understand what we are actually dividing about, why there is actual conflict. Um, and, and these give you the necessary background for everything else. Um, I just have found that a lot of people in our church don't understand what the actual conflict is and why churches are wanting to leave. So you need to watch these. Um, now, obviously, Rob is fairly conservative, and you may be wondering why we seem to have more conservative resources up on our website than progressive ones, because we did say we were going to try and give you uh, balanced information the whole way out. And the reason for that is, well, one, these these videos, especially the first four that Rob did, are are really just factual. They're not slanted in any way. They're, they're explaining the conflict. Um, so I don't really see them as being um, especially conservative or, or liberal or one-sided. I think they, they just are laying out where our disagreements are. Uh, and the second reason is I have not seen anything from anybody on the progressive side that explains those differences. Um, I see a lot of things on the progressive side that are trying to explain why you shouldn't care about the differences, uh, and, and and that's valid. That's fair enough if you want to look at those, but um, for now, I want to make sure you actually understand what the differences are. Uh, and I just haven't seen anything from people who are staying in the UMC or committed to staying in the UMC that is uh, explaining them at all. Uh, it's not just a matter of he explains them better. It's that so far, from what I've seen, he's the only one uh, who is taking the time to actually explain these differences. So that's why uh, we've put those up and we don't have like a corresponding set of progressive videos. I think Adam Hamilton's released some. My understanding is they don't actually address the same things that Robert addresses, but I haven't had a chance to watch those yet. Um, so go watch those videos. Watch especially the first four from Rob, which are, uh, I'll say the titles again, they are, the United Methodist Church is divided and dividing. That's video number one. Then number two is our differences regarding the Bible. Number three is our differences regarding Jesus. Number four is our differences regarding sexuality. If you don't have the time to watch four 15-minute videos, watch, just watch the one about our differences on the Bible and our differences on Jesus. Those are probably the most, most important. So watch those and just kind of keep an eye on the website. We'll be we'll be continuing to post more things, more resources, uh, hopefully some prayer guides here in the near future. Um, so we'll have those up. Now with that out of the way, I want to dive into our Bible study this week. Um, you are now reading the book of Ephesians, which is a great, great letter. I love Ephesians. Um, a little bit of background. The city of Ephesus is... Uh, it's on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. Now, uh, in modern times, the ruins of Ephesus are actually, I believe, somewhat inland. I believe, and I haven't actually taken the time. Hang on one sec. Sorry, I'm whipping out my handy-dandy Bible atlas because I think, actually, I've got something in here 
that talks about the city of Ephesus. Uh, yeah, here we go. Um, of course, you can't see the really cool picture I'm looking at. But in Paul's day, uh, the city of Ephesus is a port city. It's on the coast. Today, it's about six miles inland. Um, it, so it's not on the coast anymore. And what happened is it's um, it's like at the mouth of a river or in like a river delta sort of thing. And essentially what's happened in the centuries since Paul was visiting Ephesus is um, the, the water just got full of dirt. The river silted it up and it's no longer there. In fact, even in Paul's day, getting out from the open ocean into the harbor of Ephesus was dangerous because you had to sail through very shallow waters as the harbor was filling up with that silt. Um, and of course, now it's just gone. Now, now the actual city is um, a little over six miles from the coast because the river has just been carrying the, the silt and the dirt from inland out into the water, and it's just totally filled in. Uh, so just a little fun factor. When Paul is visiting Ephesus and writing to the church in Ephesus, it's a coastal port city. The ruins now are quite a ways back from the coast. Um, but it sits, if you can picture Turkey in your mind, Ephesus is um, a, right in the center of the Turkish coastline on the, on the Aegean Sea. So it's a major port city in his day. There are roads which connected overland to the city of Antioch, in, in, uh, which is you know not anywhere close by. It's all the way through Tur Turkey, but it's it's just a major port city, big important center of economics and trade. But most importantly, it is a center of magic and learning. There is this sorry about that. There is this enormous temple to the goddess Artemis in Ephesus, and it's actually considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and I don't mean archaeologists consider that. I mean the ancient people living in Paul's day considered the Temple of Artemis to be one of the seven wonders of the world. So there's this huge tourist industry with people flocking to Ephesus to come and see that temple and worship there. It's a major source of income. And if you can think all the way back into the book of Acts, there is a story in there where Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and he gets in trouble because he ticks off the people who are making money off those tourists. Uh, they make these little silver models of the of the statue of Artemis in the temple, and people come by them, and they think that Paul's preaching is a threat to their business, and so there's this huge riot in Ephesus as Paul is there. Um, this letter is being written after that. Uh, in fact, Paul writes this letter from prison. He says so. Uh, so let's dive in. In chapter 1, Paul is laying out some basic theology, and there's one there's one part in there that can be a bit of a sticking point for some people sometimes because he will talk about how God had always planned to do things this way. He uses the word foreordained. Um, let me just turn real quick and read this to you so that you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's in verse 5. Um, 
It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he favored us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Um, in, in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he set forth in him, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. To that end, we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, you heard in there the word predestined twice. Some people, lots of people, mistakenly interpret this to mean that God, that, that in a doctrine of predestination, basically the idea that God chooses before we're even born who will be saved, and by implication, who won't be saved? Um, this is really popular. I mean, this is sort of a Calvinistic doctrine, but but uh, you see this in a lot of the Reformed churches. You see this in uh, some of the more conservative Lutheran churches, especially Presbyterians will go this route. Uh, a lot of the sort of non-denominational Reformed churches will do this. Every so often, you'll find it in the Baptist churches. Uh, although Baptists can be a bit more diverse on that subject. Um, here's the thing. They're dead wrong. They have no clue what they're talking about when they talk about predestination. Because if you read all of Paul's letters, it's pretty clear he does not think that God chooses who will be saved and who won't be and that our choices don't matter. Instead, instead, what Paul is saying is two things. First, he's saying God always planned to redeem people through Jesus' sacrifice. This was always God's plan. And God predetermined that all who believe in Christ would be saved. So the plan of God before time even began was to form a group of believers. That it was predestined that anyone who believed in Christ would be saved, but that our individual freedom remains intact. In other words, this whole idea of, of predestination applies not to individuals, but it is a general concept that God always determined from the beginning that the people who would be saved are the people who believe in Jesus. Whether or not you believe in Jesus is still the exercise of your free will. The only thing that's been predetermined is that belief in Jesus is the requirement for salvation. This is important. This is important because all throughout the Bible, from Genesis right on through to Revelation, the Bible insists that our choices matter. The way we choose to live matters. The way we choose to respond to God matters. That cannot be true if God chooses, if God alone chooses who to save and who not to save. And this is the fundamental doctrine with reform, problem with reform theology, with Calvinists, um, including some of the really famous uh, and presumably very smart uh, apologists like, like uh, Dr. James White, who's out there, a, a big name apologist in the reform tradition, 
who all adopt this idea of predestination, that God alone chooses who to save and who not to save, and none of them have actually thought it through very well, I don't think, because it's abundantly clear that free will is a major part of God's plan. It's abundantly clear that our choices matter, and that cannot be true if God alone chooses who to save. Instead, what is true is that God chooses that anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. That's all it means. When Paul refers to a group of people as the elect, that group is just anyone who chooses to believe in Jesus. It's a holdover from Paul's days as a Pharisee when the Jewish people called themselves the elect of God. Now that group is extended to include anyone who has faith in Jesus. So no, God does not choose who to save and who not to save regardless of human will. Instead, God offers salvation to all, and through his prevenient grace, the grace which goes before, God offers us the ability to see our own sinfulness and understand the offer of grace, but how we respond to that is our choice. We can reject God or we can accept God. So that's important. This is a vital part of Paul's theology. It's a vital part of New Testament theology. It's a vital part of John Wesley's theology, which means it's an important part of Methodist theology. Uh, it's just an important part of understanding how God works. God's prevenient grace is at work in the lives of all people, calling them to him, offering them salvation, and we all choose then how to respond to God's grace. Now, another key feature of this letter and of Paul's theology in general is this idea of being uh, in Christ, living in Christ. Um, this means aligning ourselves with Christ in every aspect of our lives. Basically, it's saying we live in a new reality and we have a new identity. If you were here on Sunday, it's very much like what I was talking about, your faith should affect every aspect of your life. You should be living in Christ. Your identity is first and foremost as a believer in Christ, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. All other parts of your identity are subordinate to that. It is more important that you are a Christian than it is that you are an American, for instance. It's more important that you are a Christian than that you are a husband or a father or a wife, or a mother, or a son, or a daughter, or whatever. Uh, it's more important that I'm a Christian than that I'm a pastor. Anything that could challenge, that, that can become an important part of your identity has to be sub submitted and, and put underneath this idea that you are a disciple of Jesus. Okay, now I'm going to skip ahead a bit to chapter 4. And I'm going to talk briefly about chapter 4, okay? There's this, um, there's an opening line in chapter 4 where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now that, that little verse right there is really a summary of everything that Paul is saying in this letter. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, live your entire life in a manner worthy of what Jesus has called you to do. And he's going to identify, not just here, but, but all throughout his letters, sort of three virtues 
that Christians should exhibit at all times in their life. And those virtues are humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience. This is radical. Humility, in particular, was not considered a virtue in Greco-Roman society. No one thought it was a good thing to be humble. If anything, humility was a sign of weakness. And, and this is why Christianity is so countercultural in Paul's day. Paul is saying, no, humility is a virtue. God wants us to be humble. And this leads us into chapter 5, which contains some of the, <laughs> the best and most controversial parts of Ephesians. So he's going to talk about what it means to be an imitator of God. And this will get us to the famous bit about uh, husbands and wives. But before we get there, let's let's identify something real quick. Before we get there, um, there is this bit in uh, in verse twenty one, where Paul tells people, "Subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ." Subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. In most translations, it's submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Either one works. So he says that, and then he says, wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. So before he ever talks about what husbands and wives should do, he gives this command to the whole church, all of them, saying you all should be submitting yourselves to everyone else in the church. So this provides some important context for what he later says to husbands and wives, because the first, before he ever talks about what husbands and wives ought to specifically be doing with each other. He says, everyone within the church should be submitting yourselves to each other. Now, the next thing we have to understand is this. In, in Greco-Roman households, and Paul is writing to a community of people who were Gentiles. These are not Jewish Christians. These are Gentile Christians. In Greco-Roman households of Paul's day, the man had absolute power over his wife, his children, and his slaves. He was the unquestioned lord of his household. If he killed his wife, that was fine. He had that right. He had the power of life and death over everyone in his household. Absolute control. He could kill them and not face any legal consequences. He could beat them however he wanted to, however often he wanted to. He could starve them. He could abuse them. He could do whatever he wanted they were all his property, and he had absolute legal authority over them. Okay, so understanding that. First, Paul instructs all believers to submit to one another. That's a command of the whole church. This is about dying to yourself and embodying the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. But the most important and the most radical thing he's going to do is he's going to command Husbands to voluntarily limit their authority and control over their households. Okay, so saying that the husbands are the head of the house as Christ is the head of the church. This is not talking about this concept that pops up a lot in, uh, in Baptist and Reformed and non-denominational churches about male headship. They've completely misinterpreted this. They don't understand what they're talking about at all. Because you have to read this in the context of everything that Paul is saying in this letter. He has already described Christ as the source of life and the Savior of the body. Christ provides life 
and sustenance. And in first century Greco-Roman families, that was the husband's job. By providing food and shelter to his family, he provides life and sustenance. So it's a clear metaphor to Paul because already the husband does the same thing in the physical sense that Jesus does in a spiritual sense. This is not a picture of dominance and submission, especially not since Paul is about to command husbands to submit to their wives. It is instead a picture of provision and growth. It is literally Paul telling husbands, your job is to care for your family in the way that Christ cares for the church. It's not about power. It's not about authority or leadership. That's just nonsense. Now next, he's going to tell wives, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now again, this is not Paul saying that wives should submit to their husbands because husbands are like gods and wives are not. In fact, you'll notice he never once says that wives should be obedient to their husbands. That's not in here. Instead, he's very clear in other letters especially um, that if a husband is treating his wife sinfully or if he's asking her to commit sin, she should follow Christ and not her husband. So a wife submitting to her husband should be acting with humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, Paul is asking wives to act as all Christians should always act. And put yourself in the shoes of one of these wives, where you live in a world where your husband has absolute authority over you, can kill you on a whim if he wants to, can beat you without facing any consequences, it's not illegal, it's not considered abuse. There's probably going to be a temptation there to be a bit rebellious, especially in the context of a wife who has become a Christian, is learning that Jesus is her Lord and not her husband, there's going to be a temptation there to be a bit rebellious. And Paul is saying, no, even in the privacy of your own home, when no one else is watching, you should be acting as a Christian always should. And when you consider if both husband and wife are Christian and they're both being told, hey, you've got to live differently now, there's going to be even more temptation then for the wife to Maybe act in ways that are not humble, gentle, or patient, because for so long she's had to kind of live in fear of her husband, right? If she displeases him, she could be in real trouble. And he's saying, no, 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 no. This is not the time to lash out or seek vengeance or, or, or uh, act out in a way that's not consistent with the gospel. Even in the privacy of your own home, act as a Christian should with humility, gentleness, and patience. And it's important to notice that actually in this passage, the bulk of Paul's instruction for marriage falls on the husband and not the wife. Which makes sense because the husband is the one who he's really got to correct here because the husbands are used to having absolute power and authority in their household. And Paul is saying, nope, you don't get to do that anymore. Paul is saying, uh, right, the husband is commanded to love and care for his wife and her needs and not to abuse his power. This is why he compares the husband, to Christ and says, look at what Jesus does. Jesus lays down his power and his authority. Jesus is God. Therefore, he has absolute power and authority over all life on earth, 
in the same way that the husband in your household legally has absolute authority over everyone in the household. And look what Jesus did. He laid down his power. He actually laid down his life. He died. You husbands, that's your job. To lay down your power. To lay down your authority. To show love and compassion to your wife. To act with humility, gentleness, and patience. To act as all Christians should always act. And it might be a bit harder for you husbands because you are used to having absolute power and authority in your own household. And that is no longer the case. So in a culture where husbands held absolute power over their entire household, this is revolutionary. Paul is saying, no, you don't have that power anymore because all power belongs to God. Your job is actually to be self-sacrificial and humble and gentle. To put their needs above your own needs. It is a revolutionary command. But if you don't understand the cultural background here, you're going to miss what Paul is saying. This is not about saying that men are the heads of their households. It's exactly the opposite of that. He is literally saying men are no longer the heads of their household. Jesus is the head of the household. And and you men have to give up the authority that the law gives you and submit yourself to Christ, and submit yourself to your wife. It is the exact opposite of what so many Christians have interpreted to mean for so long. And if I sound a little annoyed by that, it's because I get annoyed by people who do lazy theology when they read their Bible. And next he's going to turn to children. And he commands that children should obey their parents. But then he also commands that the parents, and again, especially the father, should exercise restraint. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now again, talking to a bunch of fathers who for their whole lives so far have held absolute power over their children, he's commanding them to restrain themselves, to give up their power. And he's going to do the same with slaves. He's going to tell slaves, Your job is to act as all Christians should always act with humility and gentleness and patience because Christ is your only true master. All throughout this book, what he's doing is he's telling people, listen, Christians should always act with humility and gentleness and patience. And then he has to go through into these specific cultural scenarios and deal with what that is really going to look like. And the biggest people, the people who need to hear that message the most are the men, the husbands and the fathers who have been told their whole lives that they have absolute power in their household, that it is not just their right, but their responsibility to rule their home with an iron fist. And Paul is saying, 
No. That's just not true. Jesus is your master. You are supposed to live like him. And Jesus is all about self-sacrifice. He's all about humility. He's all about giving up your power and putting others first. So the image that Paul is laying out for marriage here is a marriage of equals, of two people submitting themselves to one another. And the reason he has to talk about men so much is because the men have more work to do in that regard in his culture than the women. They have more power to give up. It is just nonsense to suggest that this is a passage about uh, male authority in the household in the sense that it, people will take this and say, well, this means men should have authority. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, no, men, you do not have any kind of special authority in the household. In fact, God is commanding you to give up the legal authority that you are granted in your home. It's completely the opposite of how many people have interpreted it. And so it's vital for us to understand that. It's all about submitting to each other and living with humility and gentleness and patience. And that's the book of Ephesians. All right. We'll see you all next week.